Thanks for tuning in to the Met Church Podcast. Here at the Met, we are all about connecting people to God and one another. If you have any questions or want more information about what's happening here at the church, then head to our website at metchurch.com. We would love to stay connected with you throughout the week through social media. So be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Now, enjoy the message. Well, good morning, everyone. Happy to welcome you in the room. And thanks again to those who make this place clean and ready for you each time you come into the room. After we turn over a service, people come in and clean these seats and they clean all the spaces where people are just to make sure you're in a very safe atmosphere. So would you thank all those volunteers for doing that? We're very grateful to them working behind the scenes to do that. And then I wanna thank all of you who are, who are watching online for sharing the services. We have literally thousands of people who are attending the service right now across the country and in other states on three different platforms we string the services and it's so exciting to see the, the, the footprint of the church as we reach out in this way. And I wanna thank you for sharing the services because who knows how God will take his word and what he will do with that word in different places uh, as people watch. So thanks for that as well. Uh, we are talking about what is next for the church and we're trying to reorient our church to the very basics of what we are to do as a church, uh, to the very fundamentals, if you will, because it's so essential that we as a church stop from time to time to assess where we are and where we're trying to go because it's so important from time to time that you are evaluating your goals, that you are looking at where you are in life, where you are with your finances, with your family, with your career, because if you don't really understand where you are, you'll never get to where you're trying to go. Remember back before COVID, BC before COVID, uh, when you could go to the mall and you would shop in the mall and you would find the map and you would try to locate the store you're looking for and what you would do when looking at the map is you'd find the red dot. You remember what the red dot says? The red dot says you are here because you can't get where you're trying to go if you don't know where you are. Remember before we had Waze and we had Google Maps back in the old days when you had to call and ask someone for directions and the first question they would ask you whenever you were saying, hey, I can't find your house, they would say, well, where are you right now? And because they needed to know where you are, were so that they could guide you to where you need to be. So I think we all get that, but it's important that we do that because sometimes we don't stop long enough to evaluate it. It's like, hey, I'm making good time and why should I stop to see if I'm getting where I'm going? I don't wanna, you know, I'm just, I'm making great time. And you may not even know if you're moving in the right direction. So as a church, we do that. We evaluate where we are, where we're trying to go, because that's important. I found in my life, I don't know if this has hit you in this way, but the devil is a master at using weapons of mass distraction to get us off course. And strategies that he uses are often effective. Now, he's smart enough to know that with most of us in the room and most of us watching online, he really probably couldn't tempt us was something that appeared to be just overtly wicked or just overtly evil. He knows most people would probably say, no, I'm gonna pass on that, sorry, I don't need any of that. I got enough trouble, I don't wanna bring that on myself. So he knows that's not going to be a, an Achilles heel, he knows that's not going to be a blind spot. So what he will do is not approach you with something that appears to be evil, he'll approach you with something that appears to be good when uh, best is available. And sometimes he gets you to settle for that which is good instead of for that which is best. And so I'm just suggesting when you look back at the original temptation in the garden when the devil appears to Eve in Genesis 3, you remember what he said? Do you want to be like God? Now that's important. He didn't say, don't you want to be like me? 
The temptation was not on the surface to appeal to her to fall down, but to fall up. So sometimes good can become the enemy of best, and sometimes we settle for less than God's best for us, our life, and it's a strategy of the devil. It can happen in a church. It can happen to anyone. You see, you will end up on whatever level you settle on. You won't grow past that. You won't grow past that. And so I'm just suggesting you never settle. <laughs> just don't settle. And realizing living is what you're alive to do. And God has a purpose and a plan for your life. And part of his purpose and plan for living is to evaluate how we're doing that. And to make sure, as I want to talk to you for a little while about, that we are sharpening our focus. Make sure we are sharpening our focus. In fact, when Paul was writing to the church at Philippi, the apostle Paul said in Philippians 4, he says, forgetting the things that were, are behind, I can't do anything about that anyway. Pressing toward the things that are ahead, I can do everything about that. He said, I, uh, this one thing I do. Remember Curly from City Slickers? <laughs> that scene where he said one thing? That's not bad theology. So many times we get involved in so many other things and we neglect the one thing God has designed us to do. God has primarily designed you for a purpose. He's designed you to do that one thing. So be the best you you can do and learn to do better the thing you do best because God has a plan for every life. He has a plan for this church. So Paul said, look, this one thing, stay focused on what he has called you to do. Get involved with good things, but don't neglect the best thing. In fact, when you look in James chapter one, verse eight, James gives this warning. He says, listen, a double-minded person will be unstable in all their ways. Uh, no runner ever won a race while running to two separate goals. You have to be focused on where you're going. Where will you be when you get where you're going? <laughs> That's a good question to ask yourself. Where are you gonna be when you get where you're going? You're going somewhere. And I'm just suggesting you that if you are double-minded in your approach to life, you'll never achieve what God has designed you to achieve. You know the power of a river, when you think about it, the power of the river is in its focus. A river is channeled between two banks. And if the banks were not there, the water would run everywhere and you just have a stagnant swamp. So the river has power, it can turn a power plant because of its focus. And so just like the river, you and I have, are to be focused on the thing God has called us to do. Listen to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12. All things are lawful to me. In other words, I can do a lot of things. And I'll say parenthetical to that, that when you know Jesus as your Savior, the Holy Spirit lives within you. We are sealed to the day of redemption. And once you know that, you know I'm free to do a lot of stuff. I have the freedom to do good stuff, and I have the freedom to do bad stuff. I have the freedom to do smart stuff and I have the freedom to do stupid stuff. <laughs> we are free to do a lot of things. And so Paul was writing saying, look, all things are lawful. I have the freedom to do it, but get this, not everything is expedient. We get the word expedition from that word expedient. Um, if you've watched documentaries of people who train and prepare to go climb K2 or Mount Everest, you see that a lot of people put years and years and years of training and money and effort into preparing themselves for what they will call an expedition. Now, I've seen people that have done that crazy stuff, and I've heard them interviewed, and you know what I've never heard them say? I've never heard one of them say, I actually don't even know how we ended up there. We were just taking a hike through the mountains, and next thing you know, summit. Never happened. 
They were expeditious. They were purposeful. They were intentional. They had a, a clear focus on where they were trying to go, and they stayed with it. They dropped out of, of, of left things off that would keep them from achieving that goal, and they were purposeful until they achieved it. And I'm saying, guys, you've got to have that laser focus in your life as well. And we have to have that collective focus in our lives as a church as well, because a church like an individual can get busy doing good things and neglect the very best thing. We can be a good church when being a better church was available. We can do good things when the best things are available. So we have to stop and evaluate and assess sometimes, are we doing a lot of good things and neglecting what is the very best thing? One of Billy's good friends, and he's a friend of ours as well, a young man that lives in Paonia, Colorado, whose name is Andrew Cranston. And Andrew's a guide. He works with some outfitters there in Colorado. And one of the things that Andrew does is he will take people in certain times of the year to track mountain lions. Now, why in the world? The boy ain't right. I don't know why anybody would do that. But he does that. He has very highly skilled dogs that will track mountain lions. And he's invited us to go. Let me tell you something. This fat boy ain't going chasing a mountain lion. That is not, I'm built for comfort, not speed. And the last thing I want to do is, you know, they can outrun me. You remember that joke. So, I, you know, so the point is it ain't going to happen. But it was interesting to know he does that. And he's very good at that. I've seen his pictures and he's very good. I heard about a guy that kind of was inspired by Andrew and he bought this very expensive mountain lion tracking dog. And so he thought he would take it out and see how it worked. And so, man, for over an hour, they're tracking. And if you know that terrain in the Rockies, that's some rough hiking. And so he's tracking this dog as it's on the scent of this mountain lion. And all of a sudden, the dog changes and starts going in a different way. So he's obviously following after the dog. And he realizes after about an hour of chasing this dog, he's after an elk. So they track the elk for a while. And then a little while, he goes a different direction. The guy realizes this thing, we're not chasing elk now. We're chasing mule deer. And ultimately, when he caught up to the dog, it had caught a rabbit. When I heard that, I thought, that's exactly what happens with the church. We start out saying, this is where we're going to go. And all of a sudden, this happens, and we chase that shiny thing, and then that jumps up, and we're running over here, and then that happens, and we're over here. And before you know it, we don't even look like what we started out. We're not even resembling what we intended to achieve. So I'm saying we have to sharpen our focus and be sure we're about the very best things. So that's really what the series has been about. I, I talked about the best thing when Jesus said the great commandment of Matthew 22 is love God. What in the world could we do better than love him? Let me tell you something. There are people out there that can speak better than I. There are people that may be able to sing better than us. There are people that may be able to perform at a higher level than us. But listen, there's no one, listen, no one in the world can love Jesus more than us. Nobody can do that better than you. You can love Jesus better than anybody can. So the best thing is to love him. And then he said, when you love him, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said by this, John 13, 35, by that love you have for each other, that's the validity of your ministry. That's the proof of your authenticity is how you love each other, how you treat each other. So we talked about that being one of the best things we could do, love God, love each other. And then we talked about as the body of Christ, we are to do what he did. And what did Jesus do? Luke 19, 10, the son of man came to seek and save those who are lost. The church ought to be preoccupied with reaching people who do not yet know Jesus. And as I said before, when we talked about that one weekend, there is a tendency that we have once we know Jesus to kind of adopt the philosophy of us more, no more, shut the door. 
And churches become little conclaves for the completely convinced, little hotels for the saints instead of hospitals for the sinners. And all of a sudden, you become a church that's just about us, and we lose sight of a world around us that desperately needs Jesus. And the reason Jesus came into the world was to say to his people, it's always about the people who do not yet know him. He reaches them so that they can reach them so that they can reach them. And we talked about the value of being a church that reaches people who do not yet know Jesus. Then we talked about being a church that helps develop people, helps people find their giftings and their skills and gives them an opportunity to serve in that capacity to, to try new things and explore in different ways so that God can use them through the church and how that we are as a church so much more powerful and so much better when we are together as one team, focused and united. Sundays are a big holy huddle where we get to play and we break the huddle to go out in the world and we execute that play. And again, this weekend, I'm just talking about sharpening the focus, and I'm saying from time to time, we need to stop and evaluate how well we're doing that. You know why? There are no perfect churches. Now, I've told you before, we don't have perfect churches because we don't have perfect pastors. If you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess that thing up. The only perfect church is the church that you don't know much, as much about it as you knew about your last one. That's why you need to be sure you're being led because God will not lead you into box canyons or into dead end streets. He will lead you into your next level of effective ministry service, but he will never leave you to a perfect church because there aren't any. I've told you before, be careful praying for perfection because the only way you're gonna be made perfect is when you're in the presence of God. Pray that he'll kill you. That's the only way you're gonna be perfect. Now, I'm not excusing failure in anybody's life. I'm just saying when it comes right down to it, the best any of it, listen, the best any of us will ever be are sinners saved by grace. And all a witness is, a witness is someone who expresses an experience. It is one beggar telling another beggar where we found bread. And that's important because sometimes once we're in these churches and we forget the rock, as Isaiah said, God uh, has hewn me from, and we forget the pit that he dug me out of, sometimes we think of ourselves more highly than we should think. We, we become, like the guy said, I became so humble, I was so proud of my humility. <laughs> and you can get to that point as a church where there's an arrogant spirit that can kind of set in, this religious spirit, where suddenly we feel that we're kind of better than everybody else, and we can pontificate and look down our nose on everyone else. It's called a religious spirit, and we never want that to be in our church. We always want to be a welcoming church and a receiving church because Jesus set the bar. He said, he who comes to me, listen, I will in no wise cast out. And then he said, whosoever will, let them come. Some churches at the door ought to say, no shoes, no shirt, no service, no sinners. <laughs> and I'm suggesting to you that it is the will of God. It is always in the mind and the heart of God to reach people who are messed up, who do not know him. And we have to sharpen our focus to be sure we are doing that. We are on an expedition. We're to be focused. So it's important that we believe that. You know why it's important that we believe that? Because if we don't believe that, we won't behave according to that. We'll give lip service to the fact that, well, we love God, we love one another, we love people who don't know him, we love ministry and understanding our role in the life of the church. We give lip service to it, but that's really not a reality of who we are. Because if we really believe it, a belief in something affects your behavior. So what I believe affects how I behave, and watch this, it affects who I become. So a church can be defined 
by its fruit you will know them. What is the church producing? They can say we care about the lost and we care about the hurting and we care about people who don't yet know Jesus and we care about people who are really messed up, but is that really who's effectively being reached by the church? That's why we look at our help out center and we look at people who are broken and we look at people who are hurting, who are drawn into our church and it's an important evaluation for us because it tells us that we're behaving according to how we are believing and that's going to affect ultimately who we are becoming. The old English word, one of the translations for believe was by live, by live, meaning I live by my beliefs. And if a church is living according to what it's believing, then what you do is don't necessarily listen to what they say, look at what they do. Kind of like a politician, right? You don't listen to what they say for God's sake, look at what they do. And that's true of all of us. What is a church producing? What is a Christian life producing? You see, what you do will speak so loudly, people won't even hear what you say. I've told you before, I'd a whole lot rather see a sermon than hear one. Now, that's not a good place to agree with me, by the way, at least right now at the moment. But I'd a whole lot rather do that because I'm just suggesting to you that how we live out our faith in front of our fellow man is so important. Again, it goes back to what Jesus said. It validates and authenticates the love we have for each other, the love we have for God. The Apostle Paul was writing to the church at Ephesus, and he was kind of talking as I'm talking to you guys about this today. He was talking to the church at Ephesus about really what God is doing in their church and what was the point and purpose of the church and the significance of what they believe and how they behave as it would affect who they would become. And when you read Ephesians, it is the letter that he wrote to the church at Ephesus. So he's writing to a local church like this one, or not unlike this one, I should say. And he's writing to them. In the first three chapters of Ephesians, he's talking about what God has already done for them. Now, can I stop long enough to say you and I ought to stop long enough every now and then to pull some groans out of our prayers and shove in a few hallelujahs? <laughs> I mean, we ought to stop long enough to say, God, I, don't, I, I come to you uh, thankful to you for all that you've done for me. And listen, if God never did another thing for us but just keep us out of hell, that's a pretty good deal. I mean, I'm just saying, sometimes we fail to recognize how blessed we are as a people. And I'm saying sometimes, again, just stop long enough and say, God didn't come to ask you for anything. Just humbly say, thank you. Thank you. And so for three chapters, he reminds them of how blessed they are and all the things God has done for them. And then he gets to chapter four, which is what I want to focus on. And he talks to them a little bit about what they should be doing in relation to that. And he opens chapter four by really talking about our responsibility, our responsibility. Look at it in verse one. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to look and live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Set the bar. Say, God, you've blessed me. I'm a child of God. My home is in heaven. I know one day I'm gonna be in your presence. My sins are forgiven. I'll never stand in judgment for the sins that I've committed. There's no condemnation, Romans 8. There's no separation, Romans 8. There's no more guilt. Romans 8, I have a great thing in my relationship with you. So therefore, because of that, I want to set the bar. I realize my life may be the only Bible someone reads. I realize the only picture of Jesus someone may see is what they see in me. I know you're trying to conform me, Romans 8, 29, into the image of your son. So God, I want to live a life that's worthy of that. And then he describes what this life looks like. Notice it now. He says... This calling, we are to be completely humble. Completely humble. 
It says that Paul was probably dealing with some arrogant people. I don't know about you guys, one of the biggest turnoffs for me is to deal with arrogant people. You ever have anybody in your world just arrogant, just cocky and haughty, you know? They're single, they could date a mirror and be cool with that. <laughs> uh, narcissistic, enough about me, now you talk about me, that person. You know, Narcissus was the Greek mythological figure that fell in love with his reflection in a pond. Look at that. I love me. Now, there's a healthy sense in which you need to love yourself and accept yourself because Jesus said, love your neighbor as yourself. So there's a healthy sense in which you ought to be comfortable in your own skin, but then there's a narcissistic, arrogant, haughty, proud weirdness that comes about with some people born out of probably insecurity with most. But the point is, the Bible says, look, a proud spirit goes before destruction. A haughty spirit, pride, goes before a fall. <laughs> it can happen in my profession. Heard about a guy that said, I got a great message on uh, humility if I can ever find a crowd big enough to preach it to. <laughs> or like I said, the guy that wrote the book, Humility and How I Attained It. So I'm just suggesting that it's a very subtle thing. And he says in the life of the church, our approach to people ought to be humility. The word humility comes from the idea of humus, humus, which is dirt. It doesn't mean you're a doormat. It just means that you approach people with a sense of humility. You don't know what they're going through. You don't know the road they're walking down. You don't know the experience that they're having. And so give them a, cut them some slack. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Stop it long enough to recognize they may be going through something that I'm not aware of, so I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. He's saying approach people that way, completely humble. Notice it now, and gentle. Man, sometimes we lose our, 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 our tender touch with other people, especially people who aren't in church world. And this is new to them. And they come in here anyway like, well, you know, maybe it won't fall in on me. I always tell them I hadn't fallen in on us. I think you're good to go. Or that person that says, man, I don't go to church. There's too many hypocrites. I say, oh, man, come on one more. Ain't going to hurt anything. <laughs> so the point I'm making is we have to be gentle in how we handle people. Let me give you a good proof text. Over in Galatians chapter 6, the Bible says if someone is overtaken in a fault, if they were doing something maybe they shouldn't have been doing, or maybe they were doing something they should have been doing, but all of a sudden they're overtaken. It's the idea they were ran down, ran over, and in that they were broken. You who are spiritual, he said, you who are spiritual, restore that person, considering yourself. So he's giving a word to the church at Galatia concerning broken people, and he's saying, when you encounter someone who's broken, and, and, and not all brokenness are areas that you can see. There are people that walk into this room every weekend that's broken. I've told you before, I'm still broken. I mean, I don't think you get through levels of grief in your life and losing someone you love like I have and, and, and get over that. You just get through it. And I'm just saying, you don't know. You, you look at someone and they're smiling and you don't know the brokenness of their life. And I think sometimes we make assumptions on people that we shouldn't make and we miss opportunities to have ministry in the lives of people. We, we just completely miss it. Listen, don't be ashamed of your brokenness. I found in my life that the effective ministry happens in the brokenness. It's broken people that make a difference in the lives of other people. I really do believe it is doubtful that God can use anyone greatly who has not, first of all, been hurt in some way very deeply. And oftentimes, the deeper the hurt, the greater the use. Everybody's been broken over something. 
And he's saying in Galatians 6, he says, man, when you encounter someone who's broken, uh, you're to restore them. the, The word restore is the same word that's used to reset a bone. That's why I say broken, to reset a bone. I don't know if you've ever broken a bone before, but when you go to the doctor and you get some attention on that bone, can I give you one word you want them to follow very carefully? It is this word, gentle. <laughs> gentle. But if the doctors treated us like some churches treat broken people, they'd do something like this. They'd say, what were you doing when you broke that bone? Were you sinning? <laughs> Maybe that was God breaking your bone. You ever thought about that? Because he just doesn't like you. Something about you God doesn't like. I mean, I know we don't say that in those words, but that's how a lot of churches communicate to people. They have this idea that God's some vindictive, sovereign sadist that just takes pleasure in the pain of people. And sometimes in churches, we communicate that because before we offer ministry, we want to know what you're doing when you did that because we may not help you, partner. We want to make sure you learned your lesson. We're not dispensing care around here that we know a little more about you. And boy, there's nothing more foreign uh, to the spirit of God than that attitude. You know what will happen? People will saturate that, the presence of those people with their absence. <laughs> they will run. I'm telling you, you can tell them somebody cares about you. You know why? They're humble and they're gentle. That's why when we have people come through the doors of our church that are broken, have broken relationships, broken in their finances, broken in their health, broken in their heart. You don't know where they're broken. So the approach has to be humble and gentle. And the goal has to be restore them. And here's what I know about broken people. You're going to be an ICU for a while if you're really broken. You're not going to be able to do what you did at the same level. I mean, can you imagine when people come through the church door and they're broken over something that they've gone through, maybe grief or maybe some kind of a relationship, uh, maybe the loss of someone, maybe the loss of a job, a dream, a career. I don't know, but they come through the doors broken and sometimes there's an expectation that they're here. Man, we need to get you out there on the field and sometimes what they need to do is just sit and listen for a while. You has got to heal. Your heart needs to heal. And I'd be a terrible pastor to you. if I'd feel like I'm, I'm just using you and taking advantage of you. If I told some of you the first thing you need to do is just jump back out there on the field and get back in there. Sometimes you need to sit and see you for a little while and let your heart mend. Let me take God's word and apply some medicine and allow the Holy Spirit to do something deep within you to get you stronger. Now listen, the goal is to get you out of ICU. When Cindy was so sick for so long, 21 days in that neuro ICU. But every day, you know what we prayed for? That she would walk out of there. That medical team there at Zell Lipsy in Dallas, about 12, 13 professionals would gather around the door of her room. Every morning we'd talk to them. And the goal was to get her out of there. Listen, when you walk through the doors of this church and you're broken and you're hurting, can I tell you as a pastor, my goal is to get you up and get you out of here. To get you back on your feet. Humble, gentle. That's what Paul said. And I'm just saying, guys, we we can say we believe that, but if we don't behave according to that belief, we're going to handle people wrong. 
We're gonna be a church that's judgmental and we're gonna be a church that talks down to people and we're gonna be a church that's not welcoming to broken people. And I wanna tell you something. I shared the stat with you, but there's over 1,500,000 people in Tarrant County alone that aren't in anybody's church. You know what all those people have in common? They are broken over something. So what do I want our church to do? I want our church to be true to what we say we believe and have a responsibility to live a life worthy by being humble and gentle. I need to hurry. Notice he said, be patient. The word patient's an interesting word. It carries with it this idea of, of bearing up under a burden. I told you a minute ago, be careful praying for perfection because the only way that'll happen is when you're in heaven. Here's another one to be careful about praying for. Patience. Because the Bible says, you ready? Tribulation brings about patience. If you want patience, pray for trouble. Just cut to the chase. Just pray for trouble. You say, you know, God, we're getting along great in the marriage right now. Would you bring a little trouble? That's what we need. God, the, gosh, the bills are paid. I got money. The things are, would you bring some adversity on the job? Maybe threaten for me to, I need that because I want patience. It's the only way you're going to get it. So he was talking to this church and he was saying, look, you're going to have to learn this value of patience when you go through some trials because the enemy is going to come against you when you're doing what I've called you to do. But in the tribulation, you're going to find patience that will be reflected in how you handle that adversity. Patience is endurance. You know what it means? I've told you before, some, listen, sometimes God will lift the burden off of you and sometimes he will strengthen you to carry the burden. That's patience. Patient endurance is the strength to bear up under what you're dealing with today. I wish I could stroll out here and sprinkle a little pastor dust on everybody and all your burdens just go away. Wouldn't that be good? And we'd just skippity-doo-dah out of here and go about our week. But I don't have that power. I can tell you when you tune in online and when you're a part of a service like this, sometimes God does instantaneously lift the burden. I've seen it happen. And sometimes he just strengthens you to carry the burden for another week. That's his problem, that's, uh, that's on him, that's not on me. I'm just saying that this patience thing is important. He says, bearing one another in love. And then look at verse three, he says, make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. Here's what we cannot do in a church, what no church, no church can create unity. A church is to keep the unity. Unity is created through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes people from different backgrounds, different opinions, different political persuasions. He takes people from here, from there, and all of a sudden, he, puts un he creates unity within the, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, what he says we're to do, part of our responsibility, we're to keep that unity. My responsibility is to keep the unity. In other words, anything that drives a wedge between us, I gotta fight against that. I gotta ask myself, is that a hill on which I wanna die? <laughs> I mean, do I want to lose a relationship over that? I've seen Christian people respond to each other in, in such terrible ways. What I've thought about it is, think about this with me. God may put you next door to somebody in heaven that you won't even speak to here on earth. <laughs> For eternity. <laughs> Someone said to dwell above with those we love, that will be glory. But to dwell below with some we know, that's another story. <laughs> You'll be in your mansion in heaven looking out at the blinds before you go to the mailbox. Make sure they're not in the yard. 
Don't act like you don't do that. <laughs> what am I saying? I'm saying we are to keep this unity. We're to love each other as we love him. And I'm just going to touch on these last ones. Good night. I burned my clock here. So uh, let me give you this. He talks then about the essentials. Someone as well said, in essentials, there should be unity. And in non-essentials, there should be uh, liberty. But in everything, there should be charity. There are a lot of non-essentials in the Bible. Paul dealt with them in Romans 14 when he talked about some people would eat meat, some wouldn't. Some people were offended by that. Some people say, I don't have a problem with this. Other people, I have a problem with this. What he's saying is you just respect each other. If you don't eat meat, then don't give people grief who do. If you do eat meat, don't give people who don't grieve. That's just one illustration, but it's the point I'm making is that's a non-essential. Nobody's going to go to heaven or miss heaven over meat or no meat, wine or no wine. You ain't going to miss heaven over that one. You don't go, oh, 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 you wasn't a vegetarian now. That's not going to have a thing to do with it. It's a non-essential. I respect your views. You should respect mine. We love each other, but let's don't split up over that. Huh? You get it? So there's non-essentials. Let me touch on the essentials he covers here. He says there's, look, look at now, uh, verse 4, there's one body. That's the body of Christ. There's one spirit. It's the Holy Spirit. Romans uh, 8 says if you don't have the spirit, you're none of his. There's one hope. First uh, John 3, 3, the blessed hope. It's the hope that Jesus Christ is coming again. He talks about one Lord, meaning that there's no one higher or more significant or important in the life of the church or a Christ follower than Jesus. He is Lord. The Pantheon, Romans were polytheists. They had many views, had many religions. In the Pantheon, they would allow every religion that was represented in the world to have, build an altar and worship. But here's what they had to do. They had to swear allegiance to Caesar. They had to say, Caesar is Lord. Guess what? There was one religion that wouldn't do that. It was Christianity. And that's what brought conflict. That's why Rome persecuted the church. It's because they refused to say, Caesar is Lord. They said, Jesus is Lord. So he says, one Lord. He says, one faith. What is the faith? It's the revealed body of truth. It's God's word. Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Jude 3 says, we should earnestly contend for the faith, not a faith. It's not my truth, your truth, everybody's got a truth. It's the truth of God's word. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So there's one Lord, one faith, one baptism. I believe he's speaking of the baptism of the Holy Spirit, Romans 12, 13. One God, one God, the one in essence, three in persons. God is one in essence, three in persons. There's God the Father, there's God the Son, there's God the Holy Spirit. God sent his Son into the world who went to the cross and rose, who ascended back to the Father, who then sent his spirit. Three who bear witness, but those three are one. One in essence, three in persons. So these are the things we're united on. Those are essentials. And then three, it's our diversity. Down in verse seven, unity, listen, is not uniformity. The body is diverse. My ears are different than my eyes. My hands are different than my feet. Our bodies are diverse, but they work in unity. So I'm suggesting to you that it is unity, not uniformity. We're all diverse. You say potato, I say tomato. You say tomato, I say tomato. We're diverse. <laughs> so our unity uh, exists within our diversity. And then the last point is our maturity. He talks down in verse 4 that we understand how he's wired us, and we grow up in maturity into faith in Christ Jesus. Now let me say this as I close about spiritual maturity in the life of the church. It cannot be legislated 
are mandated. You cannot force spiritual maturity. And this is where sometimes people like pastors and people in leadership, this is where we miss it a little bit, in my estimation. My dad was a pastor, and I, I know that there were messages that he preached. I know, it. I know there were messages that he preached where he preached them out of frustration because he wasn't seeing enough uh, a, a growth in the life of the church. So he would sometimes, in frustration, feel like the best way to deal with it is just bring one of those hard sermons, just straighten them all out. And my dad was one of those old school hellfire damnation preachers, if you know him. I love him. He's in heaven. I love him. I told you, I've got some of his old preaching Bibles in my office, and they still smoke like old nuclear reactors. <laughs> wow. I can hear, still go back and hear him speak and want to walk the aisle to just as I am and get saved all over again. He still puts that kind of fear in me. But my point is, the reason pastors will do that is they're frustrated. They know what's best and they don't see people taking advantage of doing what's best. They're not seeing the growth. And so what they do is instead of in front of the sheep, leading the sheep, you get behind the sheep. And what happens when you're behind the sheep because you're frustrated at the sheep and you start uh, pushing the sheep, they scatter. You push cattle. You get behind cattle and you push cattle. If you push sheep, they scatter. That's why he said the church is a flock. If you're not leading the church, they, if you get behind them because you're frustrated with them, they'll scatter. What's my point? My point is you cannot legislate or mandate spiritual growth. All you can do is create an atmosphere where that can happen. It'd be like you going home and looking at your kids and yelling at them, grow, grow. They're not gonna, they're gonna okay, what do I do with that? I mean, it just happened. If, if you're nurturing and you're loving your kids, the natural thing, you know how that works. They grow out of their clothes. If you mark their little thing on the wall, yeah, Emily, you've grown this much this year. Wow, we're marking it again. They grow. You love them. You feed them. You take care of them. That's what you do. What do we do as a church? Kind of back where I started. We set the bar. We love and we feed each other. And the natural result of that, listen, healthy churches grow. So I want our church to be measured by what we produce. And I want our church, listen, to be a place where the broken come for those who need Jesus can come and they can find his salvation, his forgiveness, his healing, and they can find spiritual health. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the opportunity to teach this morning and for those who have honored you and certainly honored me with their presence today. Thank you for those who've watched online. And Father, I pray in each case you will take your word and through the power of your spirit, you will apply it in a way that changes our lives. You said in Isaiah, your word never returns void. It always accomplishes the purpose for which it was sent. So help us, Lord, to be receptive, to be hearers of your word, as James said, and to be doers of your word. And for my friends who've never trusted you as Savior, I pray this would be the moment, the moment, when they swallow their pride and humble their heart and say, Lord Jesus, with all that I know about me, I now trust all that I know about you. Come into my heart, forgive my sin. This is my prayer and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you so much for tuning in today. If you have any questions or prayer requests, please contact us by visiting metchurch.com so that we can follow up with you this week. We look forward to seeing you next week.